a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And today we have Laura Ward with us. Hi, Laura. Hi. Laura is my dear friend. She lives in the same neighborhood where I live, and we've lived in that neighborhood together probably seven years or so. Laura, how long have you been in the neighborhood? Uh, we have lived here exactly 10 years this month. Okay, so that that is great and very relevant to what we're going to talk about because what I've asked you to share today is actually something I've only heard about since moving into the neighborhood. I know that it took place before I got to the neighborhood and then um, kind of had round two while I've lived in the neighborhood. So Laura today is going to share an experience, a couple of experiences with her two sons and their some health challenges they've had, some hospitalization when they're very little and the struggles and the trials with that. And I can't imagine living through it once, let alone twice, Laura. So thanks for joining us and willing to share. And I'm wondering if you could maybe introduce yourself to us and to our listeners so they kind of know a little bit of background about you and Trevor and your family. Absolutely. Sure. So I was born and raised in Ogden, Utah, and I have just always loved it here. So hence why we're still here. And Trevor was born in Pocatello, Idaho, And he and his family moved to the Ogden area when he was five. So he started school in the Weber School District area and kind of just went through the ranks there. We went to different schools. And then as our junior highs met up, we met at high school. And I never will forget when I saw him because as we are going, you know, from different schools, there's a lot of new fish in the sea. And I saw him in the lunchroom and he was just walking with his lunch tray. And I said to the group of girls I was sitting with, I said, Hey, do any of you know who that kid is? And my one friend said, Oh, that's Trevor Ward. Why, why do you like him? (laughs) It was the first time I'd ever seen him. I thought he was cute for sure, but I, I just, you know, played it off pretty cool. No, no, I, I don't know. I'm just wondering if you knew who he was. And I also had just that distinct feeling that that was who I was going to marry. Oh, wait a second. This was the beginning of high school. (laughs) Yep, we oh were gosh. sophomores in high school. Bless your soul. How cute is that? <laughs> I did not know that story. So so we um, didn't even know each other, but I just felt that was the, that was the man I was going to marry. And so once we got to know each other, um, I really wasn't interested in him. He was a nice guy. <laughs> he was great. <laughs> um, he's tall, you know, he's tall, dark, and handsome, and that got it for me because I'm tall, so I needed a tall guy. But um, he was probably a little more interested in some of my friends. And I thought, you know what, I'm not going to just let you date all of my friends and then I'll wait for you, you know, to be ready for me. <laughs> so we, I, I just lost that interest of, of liking him and we just really became friends. Um, we were hanging out in the same group. Our two junior high school friends meshed together to make one big group and we were just always hanging out. So we kind of established that friendship and it was a really great friendship before we even went to the dating world. So that was something that I've always 
been able to fall back on is just that strength of a friendship that we had before we even you know, dated and got married in the future. So that's kind of a little bit of our story of how we met. But um, I guess you could say we're high school sweethearts. So did you get married? Did you get married right away after high school? Or when did that transition from good friends to now we're actually going to be dating and develop a relationship? Okay, yes, we were good friends for the first two years of high school. And then I guess we that last year of high school, we were together or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever people call it. you know, we paired off and we were a thing and people knew that like we were, we were together. So then we graduated high school together. Trevor served a service mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we were married um, about six months after he got home. So two years that he was gone and then we got married. We've been married 14 years. Oh Just my goodness, I love <laughs> I love that story. So your high school sweethearts, you're dating, you yep. you stayed you stayed connected during his missionary service. Then you got married. Then walk us through kind of those early years of marriage and starting your family. Growing up, I was just uh, an avid babysitter. That's where you could find me every Friday, Saturday night. I was always babysitting. I had a specific family that they could count on me every week. Absolutely loved them. They had two boys. And that's where I spent all of my time and what I did. Well, I loved babysitting, but I knew that I didn't want to have kids right away because I was always grateful for when their mom and dad came home. (laughs) So I knew that I just wasn't ready to be that mom or, you know, have that lifestyle. So we were married for about um, four years before we had kids. And um, that was a choice that we both, you know, were good with. I mean, we were dirt poor and had nothing to our name, but we just wanted to experience the, we called it the dink life. Dink is um, dual income, no kids. So <laughs> perfect. <laughs> we um, graduated from Southern Utah University. Both of us did in education. So Trevor's secondary educator and I went to into elementary education. And so uh, we both quickly Um, gained employment and I was teaching at an elementary down in St. George and then he got a a job really quick after um, student teaching and he was at a junior high so we just would teach every day he loved it because the demands of an elementary school teacher were a little bit more than what was asked of him as he just had one prep and he would just repeat himself throughout the day so he would find himself finished at contract and go find a golf course and I would still be prepping and working and drowning in the school life. Life and then of the elementary school teacher. <laughs> and, um, yep, and that's what we did for about four years. And then um, we had our first son, Levi, and he, I was pregnant with him my last year teaching. And he was born in June of 2011. And I just timing knew. Perfect for a school teacher. Yes, exactly right. I just knew that um, I was fine to teach and be pregnant, but I wanted to be a mom. And this was kind of a new chapter of my life and a new transition. I was okay to put the teaching, you know, on the back burner for a bit. I always felt like I loved my job. I loved my students, but I didn't want to put my kid in daycare if I didn't have to. I wanted to be there for them. So I chose to then quit my job and stay home with this little newborn that we had Um, He was born in St. George, and we, with a six-week-old baby, moved up to northern Utah, where where family and home really was in the beginning. So 
we were able to come here. He was healthy and happy and cute. Just everything went fine. He was just a great little baby. A little, I mean, as only being my first, I would say he was fussy. But comparing, I didn't have anything to compare it to. I thought he was always crying, always colicky, always something. So I just always felt like something wasn't right. And as I'm trying to establish care, he had a pediatrician right at birth, but that was in St. George. And as we move up, I started shopping for someone that would listen to me. And um, I just kept saying, you know, I, I don't know if something's wrong with him. He's, he's always crying, but everything was fine. They checked him out. You know, they just told me, babies cry. I get that. I, <laughs> I understood. Mm. So we, we took him home. Um, you know, just every doctor I tried, I would try to say, I think something's wrong. And, and maybe it was just my, you know, they say something about that mother's intuition. Right. And um, I think I just had it from the very beginning. I, something was wrong. But he checked out. He checked all the boxes. He was he was fine. He was smiling at one month old. He was um, just, I don't know, just your typical little little baby. And then at about nine months old, I was still shopping for this doctor. So we went to different doctors for every well child or, you know, the appointments that you have. And at about nine months old, I, I went into a doctor and I said, hey, can we just um, hold off on these immunizations, like, I just feel like something's not right. And I don't want to just, just give them the normal battery of what you would do at this appointment. I, I really want to try to get to the bottom of this. You know, then I was immediately, and, you know, a bad mom, an anti-vaxxer, and a, just mm. on and on. And so then I was like, well, that doctor failed the test, you know, yeah, or not the didn't right pass fit. the interview. So I went to another one for his one-year visit, and I said, hey, something's not right. Um, he can't sit up. He's one years old, and now we've missed milestones. Mm. He he hit these first ones, but now he's not. He's not rolling over. He's not doing these typical things. And we have neighbor friends who have kids that are just one or two months apart, and they're crawling or they're walking. And this doctor said to me, I'll never forget, but she said, you're a first-time mom, and you cannot compare your kid to other kids. And I said, but something is wrong. And she just, again, I was just that first time mom. And I, I always look back at that as a turning point for me because I dug down deep somewhere and I wasn't going to accept that. I knew something was wrong and I, was, I wasn't going to give up. So I went to another doctor and I just laid him out there on the table and I said, hey, can you please help me? Something is not right. And I, you know, just started listing off all the things that hadn't happened yet or some of the little quirks that were happening. And she immediately, oh, my word, yes, let's get him into early intervention. Let's get all these resources. Let's start doing some testing. Let's figure this out because she could see exactly what I was saying. So that started kind of the, he was at 12 months old and it started looking up for me. I just felt relief. I felt like we were going in the right direction. So we're still looking for answers. We're we're still not sure he got into early intervention with, you know, fine colors. He couldn't sit up and he was one year old. So, so they're like, yes, we'll take him for physical therapy. We'll take him for occupational therapy and speech therapy. He was very quiet. He didn't make a lot of noise. So he was in all three of those categories with early intervention. And then one day he was just really quite off. I He had been in his high chair. I had offered him food. He refused food all day. He just, it was just a, a different day. 
And with his dad being, um, you know, the sole provider and an educator, like we're just scraping by with everything we had, he, it was a day that Trevor had parent-teacher conferences, so they go really late into the night. Like, he was gone from 7 in the morning till 7 or 7.30 at night. And so just a hard day for me, holding all of that together with this baby that, you know, just nothing really seemed to be going well that day. So Trevor got home from work, and I said, can you please just take him? Like, just, just take him. He, you know, took him. He was so happy to see his kid and just spend some time with him. So he went outside to get him some fresh air. And it wasn't 30 seconds later, there was just this sheer terror, just screaming from Trevor. Like, he just, help, help, help. And I ran to meet him. And Levi was in his arms, turning blue. Oh, my um, gosh. I'm sorry. It's been 10 years, but I will never be able to not talk about this and get emotional. <laughs> Um, Okay, Laura, I'm feeling this with you. Let's go ahead and take a break. Let you collect yourselves. We'll all kind of let this emotion sink in, and then we'll come back and have you continue. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Wow, this is a lot of emotion. You said it's been 10 years. You still feel every piece of it. Keep telling us what happened next. So he's he's just limp, and he's turning blue. And I grabbed the baby, and I said, call 911. And, and so he did. We, again, are still fairly fresh to the neighborhood. We've lived here about a year and a half now. But when you're in that moment, um, I just remember Trevor talking to the operator, trying to give our address. And he had jumbled the numbers. Yeah, Yeah, he jumbled numbers. And we live at this address. And I said, they'll never find us. That's not our address. And here I'm still looking at this baby like, what do I do? I can't smack him. I can't shake him. I just, I was so afraid that I was just watching him, him die in our arms right then. And um, he finally got the right numbers for our address to the, for help. And they came, they came so quick. And um, he had little pajamas, like a little one-piece jammy suit on, and, and they took it off of him, and they were checking all. They had his heart, you know, checking and everything, and he still wasn't responsive then. And I just kept thinking, he can't keep going this long without, like, I, in my head, I just think he can't breathe. He doesn't have air. Um, they load him into the ambulance, and they're trying to do everything to look him over and ask me about the day, what had happened. And I was just recounting everything I could. And um, as we're driving to the hospital, they said, well, we think he had a seizure. And remember, I have zero medical background. I'm a teacher. But I made sure to tell them, no, he did not have a seizure because a seizure is, you know, I'm thinking like a grand mall. And we were trained for that in, in a school setting. And so I was over there telling them, absolutely not. He did not have a seizure. Get this right. <laughs> but um, needless to say, he he had had a seizure. It just wasn't the typical, um, what I was thinking a seizure should look like. 
So they um, they checked him out at the hospital. There wasn't really much they could do. They just said, yep, he, he had a seizure. So if it happens again within the next 24 hours, call us. Uh, wow. Call call for help. Call 911. So the next day, we were just on pins and needles. Just, I mean, as anyone could imagine, you're just like waiting for the bomb to drop. Is he going to have another seizure? Is he going to be okay? Because for the first 15 months of his life, we knew something was not right, but we did not deal with seizures. And so I got him out of the bathtub. He absolutely loves water. He has since day one. And that was kind of a calming thing for him. And so I just let him splash and play in the water. And I got him out and just immediately his head went back and his, you know, he just, his eyes rolled back again. And I just said, it's happening again. Call for help. It's been within the 24 hour window. And um, the ambulance pulls up again. They um, help us. They take us back to the hospital. And this time I just, I just needed answers. I just said, please, we can't just keep going to the ER because our kid is having a seizure. We need to know why he's having these seizures. So they took us down to Primary Children's Hospital in Salt Lake, which is just about an hour away from our home and where they specialize in children and and anything that they might need in their medical care. So we were able to go, and I just had full faith that this was going to be what we needed and and they would give us the answers. So when we have um, kids with seizures, they send you to neurology, and they did the EEGs, the EKGs on his heart, all of the things, and all these batteries of tests to find out what was causing his seizures. And every time they would come back, they would tell us that it was normal. He was normal. But I just kept coming to the conclusion that seizures weren't normal. Something was wrong. And one of the neurologists said to us, um, he could have epilepsy. And that's where, you know, these tests might come back normal and he just have, has seizures. So they prepared us that he's, you know, 15 months old. He will never drive. He will never swim alone or bathe alone because we would hate for him to have a seizure and um, have an accidental drowning. Yeah. Uh-huh. He could not ride a bike because we would hate for him to have an accident there. Just all of these childhood things were starting to just be ripped from us that would be never. And I started documenting. So we, you know, we said, okay, we so appreciate your help. Um, just, just Lord, we didn't know what to do. We're just young. I mean, we we're 25, but just young, didn't know where to turn or what to do. So we, Went on, went on about our times. I talked to the pediatrician as to when he has these seizures, can we please have some oxygen? So even as he's going through these phases, I could just at least put a little mask on him so I knew that some air was getting to him. And we worked out just different plans that could make him comfortable. And um, he hadn't had a seizure for a really long time. Some time had gone by, maybe a month or, or so. And we took a trip back to St. George where we um, had you know, started our, our roots and our marriage. And we just thought, you know, we'll go back and we'll just have a little getaway. We need a stress reliever. And we got out of the pool there and he had another seizure. Oh my goodness. And I started documenting all of the times. And that was, I have to give thanks to my own mom. She is in the, in the medical world. And she just said, you know what, write this stuff down, write it down. And maybe somebody will be able to piece it together. I was able to just document every time he had a seizure, what time of the day it was and what the activity was that we had just done or were doing. 
and I took the notebook to our pediatrician. He's now about 16 and a half months old, and I just handed it to her, and I said, here's what I have. This is the information. He, he had had many, many seizures since the time the first one started till now. We had a good break, but then they just, when they came back in St. George that time, they just started frequent and two or three times a day. Oh, my gosh. And so then um, we went to to her, and I said, here it is. She took one look at my written journal of the seizures, and she said, there is something metabolically going on here. She said, every time his body temperature changes, he has a seizure. And I I just was so in shock because she said, let's get him into a metabolic clinic to the geneticist. They will have answers. Um, I remember seeing we had a follow-up with a neurologist, um, neurologist, and I we had already made an appointment to see the geneticist, but I like to you know, use our village. And I asked that doctor and I said, would it be in our interest to, to see a geneticist or, or to get into a metabolic, you know, area to be seen? And they said, oh no, no, don't waste your time. He has epilepsy. Just, just go ahead. And so I just remember that being kind of the maybe answer that I needed to, to continue to fight. I, I don't want to discredit any medical professional or anything, but I just knew, I knew deep down, why not try to get more answers? Um, and why discredit it so quickly or dismiss that idea? So, well, they, we had to wait for a phone call. And I got a phone call from the genetic team, and I knew it would be a while. They had prepped me, and they said, hey, we're really far out. And I, I understand that um, primary children's, you know, offer service to the entire Salt Lake Valley. And so I was mentally prepared. This is now February. And so I was thinking, okay, well, there, there are ways out, maybe April, May-ish. Um, the secretary called me and said, we can get him in in mid-September. Oh, my and gosh. And I was so floored. I just, and so emotional. And I just was so sincere when I asked. And I said, you're telling me we have to watch these seizures until September? And I think it was just the genuine, you know, shock in my voice. She said, I'll put you on a waiting list. And um, I hung up. There's just anything we could do is wait. She called me back within five minutes and said, I can get you in in three weeks. Somebody just canceled. And we were just so grateful. The way things started to fall into place, we went to the genetic doctor that was running blood and urine. And Trevor said he's a very numbers guy. He's very logical. He wants to know, you know, the facts and the stats. So he said to the doctor, what are the chances that you will call us with information? And she said, well, I don't want to dash your hopes, but it's less than 1%. Oh, my goodness. And here was where we were both hanging our whole hope and our world, you know, that they would have our answers because the pediatrician said, this is what's happening. His body temperature changes. They can help you. Less than 1% chance. And she called me within a few days and she said, I have your less than 1% answer. And I said, what? She said, we, we know what's going on. And she then proceeded to tell me that he has a deficiency. Um, it was just something he was born with. It was not on the newborn screening. It was something that fell through the cracks. It just it wasn't caught. He has called for short just because it's so long to pronounce. But it's G-A-M-T, so GAMPT, for long. It's guanadinomethyltransferase. Uh, deficiency. 
And what that means is his body does not create creatine. It does not make creatine. And until that moment, I didn't know any of us had creatine in our bodies. I thought that was only for bodybuilders. So the easiest way to explain that is that it's like, I mean, you know, type 1 diabetic is very common. And we know that those, the people that have that do not produce insulin. So that's the easiest way we can correlate it is it's like diabetic, but something that his brain doesn't create. So he will have this for the rest of his life. And once we were able to find it, they were able to quickly get him on treatment. And the treatment isn't a medicine or anything crazy. It's just that he orally takes creatine and two other supplements to go with it. So it is accepted in the body the best way that it can be. And wow. once we started the treatment, um, the only way we could describe his growth and his milestones was like that boy was drinking out of a fire hose. He could wow. not catch up fast enough. That is amazing. So, so, Laura, tell me, how old was he by the time you're actually getting him treated with these supplements? Um, he was 17 months when we got the news, and we were able to get in for like what he needed for supplements when he was 18 months old. So as a mom, like this breaks my heart to think you knew from the beginning that something just wasn't right. And you had medical professional after medical professional tell you it's normal. He's fine. You're paranoid. You're a first time mom. You don't know what you're doing. Stop comparing. And finally, you get to the point where you have both a diagnosis and a treatment plan. Let's take a quick break and then come back. I want you to tell us what that was like to be able to move into the phase of now managing this illness. And then what happens next when you have your second baby. So we'll be right back. Okay. All right, Laura, you've finally got a diagnosis, you've got a treatment, you've got, if nothing else, the peace of mind of knowing you're not crazy as a mother, you really did know something was wrong with your child. What does that look like as little Levi is now 18 months, getting close to two years old, and then when you when you continue to add to your family? Um, it was it was a lot. I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was so hard just trying to um, help him and to help him to grow and learn the things that he was so behind on. He started walking right around 20, 22-ish months, things that just should have already been coming. So it was really quite hard. So then as we always knew we didn't want to just have one one child, we wanted to have a sibling for him for sure. But it's just even though his age was saying, oh, he's two or he's getting close to three or things that kept happening, it was just he acted so much younger. It wasn't that he truly was his age. So time went on. He's he's at a good place. We're at a good place. Maybe we could add to our family. And it was still uh, hard. He was just very active. He was a runner. <laughs> he, he would run for me. He had no sense of danger. So just things like that where he would run into the road and you could take him and put him back and say, that's dangerous. We don't do that. He would just immediately go back. And that's what the creatine does for us is it it helps our bodies know like, oh, I, I saw something and now I can transfer that to know, you know, good or bad or help me to make a, a decision. And he didn't have that for so long. And then it was taking time to get to his brain to, to help catch him up. 
Um, it did take quite a few years, but we were able to um, have another cute little dude. Um, they wanted to know, did we want to have genetic testing like while I was pregnant? We didn't care for that. We just knew either way, even if this was diagnosed at birth, he would be okay. There's a treatment. There's a plan. But I always felt while I was pregnant with Sawyer, he's our second, that he didn't have GAMPT. I just had that calm, peaceful feeling that everything was going to be okay. And he was immediately tested at birth. But the funny thing about that is this GAMPT deficiency was put on the newborn screening in Utah. I can't take any credit for it, but we did allow for Levi's blood spot to be used. Like if it was on the newborn screening at the time, would it have been caught? And um, it was put on the newborn screening on July 1st, 2015. And Sawyer was born on July 10th, 2015. So I always say that if their birth orders had been flopped, Levi would have been caught. He would have been fine. Wow. (laughs) But anyway, Sawyer did not have this. He was fine. He had a clean bill of health. We watched a typical baby develop, and it was really fun. And I thought, wow, this is this is what it's like. They they don't cry all the time. I felt like Levi truly was crying for help his entire life. And so I thought, he he's fed and he's content, and this is fun. And to watch their little, you know, brotherhood and their little friendship form, it was just great. And so then at about six months old, Sawyer started to kind of act weird kind of act funny. And I immediately, I am now no, I had zero fear to march into a doctor's office and and advocate for my child. (laughs) And I said, there's something wrong with him. And so we started going through the, the things, but he's six months old. So, you know, he's okay. We know that he doesn't have the other, he had hit every milestone, you know, not only on time, but a little bit early. And he'd always acted a little bit older than what he should have. So, um, you know, kind of happened that the doctor said oh yeah well you know when he seems a little dehydrated you know when when was his last bowel movement and I thought oh you know what maybe it has been a while so you know he got diagnosed with just you know he's just constipated we could help that and he could go home and so okay we did that we went home um he he did have some IV through him just to hydrate him and and everything was well or it was supposed to be well And the next day, he just wasn't better, and his cry changed. And it wasn't like a typical what you know as your own child's cry. And I thought, this is so weird. And then I would try to feed him, and he would, like, choke. But he was crying because he was hungry, but it Mm -hmm. wasn't his normal cry. But then I would feed him, and then he would just, like, gag and choke. And I just thought, okay, we didn't get to the bottom of it. So I, I went back to the doctor, and the ladies at the front desk said, well, they're really busy today. They just don't have time. And I said, I don't care who has to see us, but we're not leaving. Like he needs help. I was so worried. I finally saw the doctor pass by and I just said, I feel like I'm holding a baby Levi again. And she just looked at me with those terror eyes. I mean, I think it affected her too as the doctor. So she knew what I was saying. I wasn't trying to cry wolf. They had weighed him the day before and then everything was supposed to be fine. And they weighed him again. And all of a sudden, they were so busy that day. I had three doctors in the room because they knew it was serious. Wow. He, you know, they, they felt that little soft spot in the baby's head. I don't know what any of this means, but they were getting us lined up. And she said to me, I need you to take him right back to primary. Not back, but, you know, back as in here we go again with child number two. Go to primary children's. 
they are getting a room ready for you and um when you get there it, they're they're waiting for you and i just remember thinking not again not again i am not strong enough to do this again and we had such a relief when we had a healthy baby and i remember she, she couldn't pinpoint not nobody knew what was going on with him with Sawyer this time because we we knew he didn't have gamped and i remember right before we were ready to leave her office she ran in and she said have you given him honey and i said no i i don't give my babies honey i I've read something about that. And she said, are you doing any, do you live near construction or are you doing anything to your home? And I, I said, yeah, we're, we're renovating our basement. Um, it's exposed all the way to the studs. And she said, I think he might have infant botulism and he may have breathed in something that has just sat in his gut and it is paralyzing him. And it was just kind of in the nick of time. She said, that's what I think it is. But primary children's will be able to for sure tell you. And so we took ourselves there and and now we have to leave our, you know, our older. Now we have another set of problems. Before with Levi, it was just he was our, our one thing. And now it's arranging child care and getting back to primary children's. And they told us when we got there, they ran some tests and they said, these are the typical signs. Absolutely. He's he's lethargic. He's uh, His cry has changed. He can't swallow. They said, yep, he has infant botulism for sure. We won't know for sure, like the confirmed test for about a week, but they said we need to fly in the drug immediately, and it's coming from California overnight. So we were told we cannot leave. He has to stay here until he's healed, and chances are he could be intubated. He might need to be on a ventilator. Just play it out. Here it is. And we were just shocked. Like, just I I can remember staring at each other like, again? (laughs) This is happening again. So they said, you'll be in the hospital for at least two weeks. The medicine will be here once it gets into his IV. Then you will start to see the changes. And sure enough, you know, they they were able to get it there. I think it came at like three in the morning. They brought it in and just this tiny, tiny little tube. And the nurse said, I am shaking. I've never been so nervous. I'm administering a $50,000 drug. And it was just a couple of drops, it looked like. Oh, wow. (laughs) And Trevor's over there saying, is our insurance going to pay for that? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> says the school that. teacher. <laughs> yeah, that's two years of income, right? And so he's like, "Do we have to give it to him before we know insurance are going to pay for that?" And I just said, "We'll sell the house. Just give it to the baby." And uh, you know, nobody thinks clearly at the time, but you just will do anything for your child. They um, well, don't they leave us hanging. Now we need to know: Did insurance <laughs> cover it? <laughs> They they absolutely did yes, oh, that's but good. Um, it was it was a little more than fifty thousand with all the stay and everything. I'm right. sure, <laughs> yeah, that, it always a, works out that way. Well, Laura, the, <laughs> but, this is um, a powerful yeah. story. Uh, you know, I have worked as a doula in the past, and um, that that was my history. And it's really interesting because you brought up some things that I think is really important, not just for people that are having babies and and delivering babies in the hospital, but I almost feel like we could all use a doula, somebody Mm -hmm. to help us understand, advocate, and process the information, just that third party that has less of a direct emotional stake when it comes to processing medical information. And the fact of the matter is... um, We don't have that, but what we can do is learn to advocate for our own health. And I love that you brought this up, and I think it's really important for people to hear 
that nobody knows better than you about your own body and no one knows better about their kid's body or health than the child's mother. And I think think it's really important that um, if you don't get the answers, that you keep going back and you find someone that will listen. And, you know, you're lucky you were patient and you kept going every few months as the well baby checks were coming, looking for someone who might be able to clue into what was going on. But really, unfortunately, what was happening for you is that you were being discounted. Your yep. your intuition was being discounted. And then I'm sure what happens as a first-time mom, as a young woman, being discounted for your intuition, you're starting to think, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm too paranoid. Maybe I'm being too sensitive. Maybe I'm being too fearful or anxious or all of the things that we could be instead of just trusting that innate instinct. And had you not continued to do that, you could have lost your baby. Yes. Twice. We think about that all the time. Laura, I I wish we had hours more for you to tell us every detail (laughs) of all of this because I know these sweet boys. It makes me emotional. I, I didn't realize how serious Levi's start to life was. Like I said, that was before I knew you. I, I remember hearing maybe mention that he'd been sick as a baby or something. But, you know, he he rides his bike around the neighborhood. He's he's healthy and running and playing. And he keeps my Jacob busy. And my Jacob's one of the most hyperactive kids I know. So for the sake of time, can you tell us, like, like Michelle said, don't leave us hanging about the medical bill. Don't leave us hanging about the boys today. Are they okay? Are they well? Are they given a a good future? They can do those childhood things and and those adult things. And then first answer that, then I've got another question for you. Okay, sure. Um, Yes, they can. They are both healthy and happy and full of life. And sometimes I learned a lot through this, but I always waited and I would have dreams about it, just hearing Levi's voice because he never talked. And I just thought, I would have I would have a dream where he would say hi or mom and now this little boy he is a chatter 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 <laughs> and I never once because of the hardships we've had I never once think will you just please stop just be quiet, like, I I so appreciate oh. that and that gift and so we've kind of have a double edged sword I think with what we've gone through we sure. now have raised these little entitled um we we own the world because now we dote on everything. We're just so grateful they're here. Like Michelle said, we we're just grateful we didn't lose them. So we've now provided them with these <laughs> these opportunities and this life that they think is normal, and we should jump to their every command. And so now well, we have I, another problem. <laughs> I think they're I think they're great, active little independent boys. So I don't see that at all as an outsider. But can you tell us just really quickly how long was it that um, Sawyer struggled? Was he in the hospital a long time? And again, we don't have a lot of time for that, but just curious, how, how long right. before he was healthy and well and you were able to get back home and kind of settle back down? Yep, so he was. He was in the hospital for about two and a half weeks, and then he was able to go home with no lasting effects. Um, wow. He's led a so, normal lifestyle. So he's a little champion because they had told you he'd yes. be hospitalized at least two weeks, and you went home yes. shortly after. All yes. right, so here's the question, the big question, Laura, and it's a big question. <laughs> What have you learned? Okay. <laughs> what have you learned about resilience and what does resilience look like to you? Wow. <laughs> well, Michelle really nailed it with the um being an advocate. It helped me gain a lot of confidence. I will not back down and I was never one to 
second guess or even challenge. You know, I respect people in their professional world. But I, with the mother's intuition, I just knew and I wasn't going to give up. And I don't think it was that I was grasping at straws or just hopeful, but I just knew there, there was an answer and we wouldn't quit until, until we got it. Another thing about being resilient and what that means to us as a couple as well is just we had these hard things and this was our hard in the moment. We've had hard sense, but, but this really is us. And it's sometimes easy to get stuck in the moments of pity where you want to sit and think, why? I know all of these people and they have a slew of kids and they don't even know that Primary Children's has an exit or an entrance and we've been there twice. You know, and I think it could be easy to say, why me and why us and why two times? But that's not important. I think we don't stop there. We don't stay in that moment. It's just that this is us. This is our story. And if we could find a way to give back or help somebody, we have that instant empathy. Um, anybody that I've ever heard that has had to go to primaries, I have an instant love for them. It feels like a sacred place, um, uh, that hospital, but it's just this connection. You feel connected to these people, and I would love to help and give back, and I know that so many people are able to do that because of their experiences, too. And we know that we're not the only ones, you know, things that way, but it, we just don't stay in that moment of why, why us. I, I love that, and I love you, and I've seen you do that. <laughs> there was another little child in our neighborhood who in the last year or so ended up very sick in primary children's. It was, you know, you know, most of us in the neighborhood were paralyzed because we didn't know what to do or how to help, and so we're, we're praying and we're hoping and we're wishing for this child to recover. And I remember, Laura, you just led us as a neighborhood and said, here's what we're going to do, and you helped put together a basket <laughs> of things the family might need and gift cards to the cafeteria at the hospital. Like I never would have thought of that, and... And you helped us know how to help another family because of what you call that instant empathy. I love that, and I appreciate that because I I wouldn't have known. I hadn't been through that, and I hate that you and this other neighbor of ours have to have such a quick identity together, but I'm grateful for you being willing to go there again. Rather, I mean, it would be easy enough to say, that's it, I can't revisit this, I can't help someone else because it hits too close to home. Instead, you're so open and loving and say, oh, my gosh, I know exactly how this feels. I know exactly how to help. We're not just going to stand by. We're going to jump in. And what a blessing that's been to our whole neighborhood because now your cute little boys are healthy and this other sweet little boy is healthy. And we can all see these kids running around the neighborhood and at church and school and say, oh, we're so glad they're all here. And the weight that you as as parents had to bear. I just I admire you so much and the resilience in serving other people and helping them become resilient. I think that's remarkable. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being on today and sharing your story with us. It was really very powerful and a great reminder and a a great story to, to let other moms know. If you have that instinct, if you feel something is wrong, don't stop. Keep going until you get the answers that you were looking for. If you like what you hear heard today on the podcast, feel free to subscribe to the podcast and uh, give us a rating and review. If you know someone that has a real story about real life and they're willing to share, or maybe that person's you, send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. You can also find us at Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient, Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast, 
And feel free to DM us as well. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for uh, being on the show again today, Laura. We really appreciate everything that you've shared with us. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being willing to share. And to all of you listening, remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles other people are dealing with in their lives. Talk to you soon, everyone. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson. And unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.